Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Bertolt Kulix from Austin, Texas. Bertolt is currently a software quality manager at Mabel. Bertolt Kolix, welcome to Maintainable. Hi, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, um, I've been a fan for, of the show for a long time. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. So, and thanks for listening. So, as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained or maintainable software? Well, uh, a few points here. Uh, previous guests have you know, provided a lot of great content here. I just want to reiterate some of those. Uh, since I'm mostly wearing a testing hat, uh, I, I, you know, care a lot about automation, automated testing. This is, it has been mentioned many times before, you know, automated tests, I believe, document uh, the behavior of your application. So that's a very crucial step to, to keep a maintainable software. Nobody likes writing documentation. Even if you have documents that you create by yourself, they get often outdated by the time the feature is implemented, or when it is revised, uh, nobody cares to update them. But when you have automated tests that's run as part of your um, regular uh, software development lifecycle, they do force you to update those as well as if you are changing them. Um, and you know, it's just really a must-have if you ever want to do any kind of refactoring writing. That that also uh, is uh, part of our craft. Other parts that I also kind of look at are, are, there, are is there a lot of that code or no longer used features in, in, in the application? It's just nobody likes, you know, rolling that uh, ball forward that you no longer need to. Why do you carry that weight? Sometimes, especially around the start of the year, you hear these stories about people getting into um, exercising and losing weight. And some of the ways sometimes you hear this, uh, these apps or, or uh, you know, uh, making you think about uh, your extra weight is what if you carried like this extra, you know, heavy medicine ball with you all the time. And it's the same with that cool or unused features that uh, if your customers are not needing it, not using it, then, then just get rid of it. And, and you know, pruning your application as you would prune your, uh, you know, garden uh, flowers and, and sown roses, it's, 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 it's important to maintain a healthy uh, code base. A, a lot of the things that, you know, some kind of stacks are better than others uh, with this is that, you know, our software has built with a lot of uh, third-party open source components, as well as you know, in the in the uh, you know day and age of uh, uh, SaaS products, uh, we often need to use APIs as well. And you know, these are also something that you need to to manage and maintain. And if you don't carefully select what what uh, components you pick up, or if you are picking up just willy nilly without any kind of consideration of what it will mean for you to to maintain yourself with those uh, dependencies, then then it, it will become it will become a, a burden on you and will become also a tax. So if you can keep those to the minimum necessary, 
big components that meet your criteria of you know those are maintained just as well as your own uh, code then then you probably are going to be in a good spot you know take a quick step back because you mentioned that you know you wear primarily a testing hat so can you talk a little bit about the kind of roles that you're typically playing in organizations i know you know kind of deal with quality assurance and ops roles so what, what does that look like in your world in, in, in the last few years, what we have started seeing is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, there are more and more organizations are adopting uh, um, the modern uh, testing uh, practices and principles. Uh, you can read more about that on moderntesting.org. Alan and Brent, you know, they also run a podcast uh, related to that, uh, Alan Page, uh, uh, on, on, on this topic. But... Primarily, you know, testers, test specialists are more and more uh, getting to a role where they uh, work with the development team and enable them, help them to do the, the testing and, uh, themselves. Because it, it has been, uh, you know, for a long time in our uh, industry, uh, it, it was usually the practice that you needed to have dedicated test engineers to do even just the basic feature testing. There is a realization that you know uh, we we may be better or not so good at at uh, software testing ourselves, but developers can also learn this uh, craft, and it's especially when it is we are talking on the feature level uh, testing. Test specialists can be in a role in more of an enabling role uh, to to help uh, developers to to maybe think about different aspects of how you would approach testing a particular application or code, uh, maybe lower the barrier for, for test automation by building tools or frameworks, or also even just, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, uh, production data, how users are using the product. Sometimes developers um, have the tendency of, you know, uh, failing to step out of their zone and and looking from the outside in versus uh, you know approaching things just which is normally their way from the from the code to the outside. And at the end of the day, uh, this also helps you know the testing uh, specialists to be no longer the bottlenecks because in the traditional way of doing things, you know, developer creates code. And then it's it's supposedly done, and the tester picks it up before it can be released to production. So no matter what happens, usually uh, no matter how good your organization is, the testing team in that kind of mode will become the bottleneck. I think it's a much better role for a tester to be an enabler of delivering uh, quality code, high quality code, by you know telling or you know uh, helping the team to to be better at at, at testing, than being seen as the bottleneck that he he is the guy in the in the in in the way of us getting to 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 production. And in the thing that I'm so curious about with how. Because I've talked with a number of different people on the podcast where I've seen a lot of different flavors where there's there's teams where they're trying to keep it all within the engineering team. Like, oh, we write automated tests. We don't need like someone to manually kick around and do things. And we've and there's other organizations that are they have a whole large team of people that are responsible for going around and manually testing things. So there's like the spectrum of like what teams can do or should do given on what their context. The thing I'm always really curious about is 
the thing about that idea of like how can a special like a testing specialist help engineers get better and how they think about approaching the software they're writing and the tests that they're hopefully writing to go along with that. It's so I always it's so interesting when trying to think about like you talk about this outside in and it's like, you know, outside of like the concern of like maybe QA or some, someone that's doing testing as being a bottleneck for things getting shipped out to delivery, is there more of a concern around just the getting that feedback cycle of like, okay, I, th- I think this is where we need to be. And then we need someone to test and be like, oh, there's a couple of little things maybe we didn't account for. This doesn't quite match the spec pushback. So you get that kind of pushback and you kind of avoid things getting pushed out to production that aren't feature complete yet. Or is it trying to reduce that cycle? Because I'm also curious how well engineers can be super successful also at trying to wrap their head around the whole thing. Given that they're in that space of working on the thing, can they really be effective at testing it, the work that they're doing themselves because they're in a weird way biased because of, you know, just like they're, they have a tunnel vision, like, well, this is how people are going to use it. Um, here's the happy path or whatever. So I just find that interesting to try to see how teams are trying to navigate that. So it's not, because I think I have an opinion that I don't think people are always really good at testing their own thing. You need to probably need some other sort of check and, and balances in that process. Uh, and and you know uh, uh, that 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 is uh, actually fine. That uh, but I think uh, what what is uh, I think is a fall- fallacy is that you know only testers can do testing, which is which is quite right. And you know there are a lot of uh, kinds of uh, practices and uh, exercises that can help you uh, uh, you know deliver that code. As as you say, you know at the end of the day we want to sh- shorten that feedback cycle. And you know this is where you know. Maybe practices like pair programming, mob programming, peer reviews can can really help so that you know what what you deliver. Do you get the feedback you need, and and uh, while you are developing the feature and creating the of course the test for it, uh, but you also so get the feedback the, that you need. Also, you know, uh, teams there are like. For example, testing specialists, one of these very nice exercises that uh, they can also help facilitate some of these uh, kind of in a gameful fashion, setting up a, a risk storming sessions with the team that, hey, here are the things on our board for this sprint. Uh, what, where do we think, uh, and and go through with the team what what they believe are the you know the highest risk or impact to their uh, application and and you know prioritize their activities around that. And that way, it's it's much easier for also the entire team, including developers, to internalize what is expected to be delivered. Because uh, uh, you know, of course, we you want to uh, build it right, but you also build the right it, and and uh, you know you. Need to understand both uh, how how those work. Do you use the metaphor technical debt very often? I, I I think it is you know in some some cases necessary, and it's all uh, as you say business context is 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 different uh, than than you may um, ha- have to accrue that. But uh, I think just being mindful of that and being aware of that and uh, uh, dedicating time to, to address uh, some of that is, 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 I believe, is also should be part of the, the planning. And then you are looking at, okay, if we had to do this and we had to cut corners because of uh, certain circumstances, but next time you come around planning uh, uh, or, or or reviewing what the priorities should be that should be also 
taken into account and not forgotten. So I, I think that's that's the part that I, I I care about more is that you know okay yeah we have this and yeah, we understand that we de- are doing this and we are doing this because and then let's let's make sure that you know we record that fact so that later when when it comes to revisit our priorities then it comes into play that we we had to do this. One of the things you had mentioned earlier was around documentation and you know there's always this like testing can be a really great way to as you said to document the behavior of the application or the ideal behavior of the application and kind of capture that whereas sometimes documentation if the team organization isn't consistent about how often they go back and update those things I think we probably both would agree that there's there's a kind of documentation debt type of issue that we end up accumulating what about like on the testing level is there is there something like technical like testing related debt in the same way that's not necessarily just like well we we made some coding decisions in this certain way but do you find that there's sometimes some things that start to you've decided on the testing level that ends up you know you're going to come back and need to optimize later down the road well uh i i think uh, what what uh, should be part of a lot of those discussions is, is you know when you're picking certain technologies or stacks or frameworks uh, on the on developer side, it's just to, and and this is why I also like that developers do their own testing and implement their testing, is that you know you will think about you will be forced to think about the testability of what you are uh, delivering. So if you if you pick something that is like uh, untestable, like uh, I I know that you will work with uh, uh, React frameworks and certain React components like maybe you are lacking uh, those data test IDs that would make it easier for you to uh, automate certain end-to-end tests, then you may be looking for an alternate one. O- obviously, there are there could be, you know, technologies also or frameworks on the on the, on the testing side that uh, need to be looked at, which which one is, is better for my case, which one is better suited for my application, so that, uh, you know, there are times when you, you know, it, it may make a lot of sense that your application is written in a particular language, you want to pick the same language for, for the test framework as well, so that it's... You don't have, or, you know, where do you store the test code versus the product code that also comes up? And, you know, of course, it's better when they are versioned together, uh, maintained together. Um, on, on the testing side, as well as on the development side, I feel that, you know, even if you have to, you know, create documentation, and, and maybe in certain contexts you have to because you are in a highly regulated environment, then I think the best uh, documentation that often works is, you know, some of those high-level that documentation that doesn't change very often, and it's probably gives you like a good intro into yeah, how we the application is put together, but what are the bigger components and 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 the rest of it again could be documented by uh, uh, automated tests or or you know readme files that are again maintained and versioned with with the uh, repositories, not someplace else. Uh, it's uh, it's it's inside within that repository that you work day to day. You want to take a quick step back as well, and um, can you tell us a little bit about Mabel and how does the product kind of fit into a team's workflow? Yes, has changed over the last few years, and Mabel is in in this uh, industry. Is that end-to-end testing in in the past really used to be uh, um, something that you did after you deployed art either into a local staging or development environment, or in some cases uh, some. 
uh, companies just deployed into production and do the end-to-end -end testing uh, uh, after the fact. And it, uh, it was not often, you know, part of the developer's own responsibility. Again, a separate team is, is doing that. Mabel can help, and, and, you know, there are, of course, other vendors in the space, is that, you know, we are a as a test automation as a service uh, company that allows you even developers to to integrate the end-to-end -end testing the, uh, into their workflow. We are not saying, and you know, companies not pushing that the that's the only kind of testing you you know everybody knows about that test automation pyramid. You know, you have to have you know testing at the right levels, but uh, the end-to-end -end testing is really where what what the customer. I, and the users are typically going to be using. So you need to have a few of those. And if you can develop that at the same time as you're writing your code, you can shorten that feedback uh, cycle that uh, you also mentioned earlier on. And this is what we are uh, doing. Also, Mabel is in this uh, interesting area that it's, it's a low-code platform. Uh, which also opens up creating these, uh, you know, who can author this test is no longer just somebody who knows uh, uh, React inside out that can write these automated tests, but you could have, you know, business analysts, product managers uh, also involved in, in creating authoring tests. They often know these, uh, you know, some of the maybe the critical user flows uh, better than, than maybe maybe the developers and they can maybe sketch it out, create a skeleton of that task or even create a test on a mock-up uh, that you can do. We are also, you know, started doing more around mobile testing as well as API testing is, is becoming uh, much more important these days that uh, we, we offer as a service. And so is that type of thing that you're ideally set up to run against like staging environments and or production environments as well? That, that's that's right, you know. Uh, so we allow our tests again be uh, run against different kind of environments. Uh, we, we have also seen what is really interesting because we work with many companies where, you know, uh, there are still you know separate manual testing teams or a lot of manual testers that once they start learning how to to use our platform, they they use. Uh, Mabel as their platform to to teach other teams or uh, others inside the company to to learn more about end-to-end -end testing and test automation, which is not something we, we expected, but it's like a really good side effect of, of using a tool like this. That's nice. I've been meaning to take it some time to play with it myself because, you know, there's sometimes there's projects that come our way and um, I'll talk to their teams or leadership people at those client potential clients and they're we don't think our developers have spent a lot of time doing testing or they're like, well, or they like, oh yeah, our developers tested it. And when we look in the code and we're like, well, there's actually no automated tests or no one's touched the tests and done anything to them in three years since maybe, maybe there, you, you did have someone writing tests, but the last three years since they left, your other developers have not kept that going or, and it doesn't run anymore. So you could say it's tested at the end of the day, we know most developers test their code to some degree and it might be manual click through testing or, whatever, how developers might be testing, checking the values in the database, whatever developer, at some level, I want to believe that most developers test. It's just, are they making it easier for themselves to reproduce those tests so that they don't have to run through every single one of those manual tests every time they make a change? Um, and rather than just crossing their fingers and hoping for the best, which is what I think this whole purpose of this part of our industry is trying to improve that type of that type of example because it didn't that crossing your fingers doesn't work right 
forever, or at least doesn't work in those conversations when someone says, how do we make sure this never happens again, right? So um, that's where automated testing and testing teams come into play. Yeah, and one more thing I wanted to add is that, as I mentioned, that you know the, our platform is pretty easy to use. It's low code, but it also provides very rich information when something fails. And because uh, you spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time checking out. So why does this uh, you know test fail, and how to understand that? And we capture like Chrome step traces or network. Uh, traffic using HAR files that, you know, then you can point the developer that, hey, go look at this and because you have all that info, your screenshots and everything that, that will help you, again, reduce that time so that you can, you can go on to the next task when, when something fails. We'll be back with our interview with Bertold in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for making time to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, is there someone in the industry you think I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Bertold Kolix. So another thing I wanted to dig in with you, because something you mentioned earlier on, we were talking about traits of maintainable code. And one of the things you've talked about was like having a, the exercise of pruning your garden, identifying unused areas of the code or dead code. And I think that can be challenging for teams where, especially if the engineers are kind of far away from the end users or the actual customers. And so you're relying on the product team or they have, or at least I've heard a lot of engineers talk about, well, the product team's always trying to work on the new things that are going to attract new clients and or retain the clients we already have. Uh, we need that big list of features to compare to our competitor, even if they're not using it in some way. So there's sometimes unused code that's perceived to be important for that side-by-side -side comparison. Uh, what are some effective ways that you've seen teams be able to go through and identify those areas that they may or may not know if it's being used at all? And and have you seen any good examples of where maybe there's an area of the application that's rarely lightly used? You have like that one customer that's using it maybe, but like 99% of them don't. And so I know that at some point you have to make that painful decision. Like, what well, do we keep trying to support it from that 1% or should we just tell our customer that that's no longer going to be here? I get that that's a couple of different topics rolled into one. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I think it is really important, and and uh, I'm, I'm sure you know that over the years, especially the last ten years, what what really has changed is, is we have this uh, the you know this transition from the on-prem installed applications to the SaaS uh, applications. One huge advantage of that is that now all these companies and vendors have access to a lot of data from their users because it's you're all collecting and if you're not collecting it you are missing out on something very important so you can actually measure what parts of your application is being used and being uh, you know what 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 is important and you can even see what the critical flows are in your application it's no longer guesswork if you of course instrument your application properly and you know these can uh, guide uh, those decisions uh, on on uh, what what to keep, what not to keep, and uh, 
you can also, uh, you know, look at uh, information. I often work with our support team, but, you know, what are the areas that are causing all these uh, pain points? Because at the end of the day, when, when you have to uh, maintain this code, there is, there is a cost uh, associated with that. I was really impressed um, uh, a few years ago when I heard this um, talk from one of the former product managers at the company, Yammer, where they mentioned that they actually celebrated uh, uh, releases when they removed code or removed a feature uh, so that you know they build this kind of culture to keep their code base lean and, and clean. And, and one reason, again, new members joining a team are, have much easier time if you have a well-maintained code base as opposed to when you have a lot of these uh, hidden uh, areas that are neglected or lesser used. But so, so, so to me, that, that is important now that we have the data that you, you can use and leverage, and, and there, there is no excuse not not to do that these days. Is uh, the other part that I think is is important is is um, maybe tying uh, or working on figuring out what 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 your you know uh, business level metrics uh, could 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 the organization or a team uh, think about as 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 those are the goals and and one of my favorite books on this subject is Accelerate uh, where uh, you know the you know, that uh, they studied hundreds of companies and then figured out what, you know, makes it to be a highly successful, highly uh, effective team. Uh, what what I really like, some of those Nasdaqs, for example, you know, your frequency to deploy or the ratio of failed deploys, what is your lead time, is that, you know, these metrics are important to the business, but they also don't prescribe and don't give you exactly how you should be solving it. It still gives the, all the teams, engineering teams, the independence to figure out and peel back the onion. And, and so what could we do to, to make sure that these metrics that we, we all share and we all understand that are important for our success and, 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 and beating our competition as well, how, how do we support those goals? And if you can have this executive and high-level support for, for achieving your goals, then your, you know, your job or justifying spending time on certain activities is going to be a much easier conversation. You know, it's an interesting point there you made um, around trying not to be too pres prescriptive and giving teams some independence to come up and experiment with ways to try to achieve these types of ideal outcomes, right? And so... I think in the industry where we're kind of often looking over our shoulder at our neighbors or competition, like, well, they're doing it, or there's really big company, Netflix is doing it like this, and they seem to be really successful on their engineering side. Why don't we do the exact same thing here? It doesn't always work really well in every, you know, you can't just always apply the same pattern because it's not the same people. So what, how, how have you helped teams like understand that distinction there? It's all context dependent because uh, you always have to understand what what business context you are in, what industry you are in, who are your customers uh, to be able to, you know, yes, I absolutely agree with you. Just be, because the squad model at Spotify worked very well doesn't mean that I can just copy paste that into my organization and do exactly the same thing because Spotify has a particular user base. They have a particular context. They are in a particular maturity in their 
journey as a, as an organization, but that may or may not apply to to my own context. There may be ideas there that uh, are you know interesting and and you should consider uh, applying, but you know that's not the end all be all. So this is uh, again. You know, in in some of the books, they they uh, they describe it very well. Is that when when you let's say join an organization, you you want to understand the three P's, the the people, the product, and the process, and and uh, and and you know uh, just uh, adjust your approach to that. You, um, I've I've seen it. You know, in in smaller startup companies, when you have to, you know, your goal is really to acquire as many customers as possible. You know, you can sacrifice certain things in in the name of that goal, but when you kind of mature into a, a larger business, and then now you have like enterprise customers and that have certain expectations, then you you have to adjust your processes as well, and then what what is important to you. Um, so um, that's. Uh, what I what I think is important is just, you know you really need to understand the context and and adjust uh, and and you know, take steps uh, towards those goals uh, with, with that in mind. You know, and and I think that brings a good way to segue into the topic that we had you had mentioned in our when we were talking about some of the topics for this episode, and you had mentioned you know getting to that mature point in an organization. I know that you know you were mentioning that Mabel. Um, there's sometimes that you might be working with certain types of clients and they might have some interesting requirements that your organization needs to handle. And like, in particular, there was one around, you know, if the, in the event of some catastrophic event where, you know, your company is no longer able to perform its functions and maintain the software that the company, your clients are relying on, um, there might need to be some sort of, uh, failover process for like on the company level for maintaining that software. Could you tell walk our listeners a little bit through what that process might look like? Cause I hadn't heard about that. It reminds me of like succession planning on like a role type of thing, but it's like, it's interesting to think about that on a software level. It's not just like, Oh, we're just going to go sign up for a new SaaS application over here and just move over. It's like your people are making a large investment with, with your product. Right. So how do you, how do they protect their investment of time? Yeah, yeah, the, the, uh, that's right. Uh, and not, not at this company, we are not at this stage, yet, but the, the, the previous company, we actually had this uh, contractual obligation for some of our clients that, you know, uh, we had a disaster recovery process in place, especially large financial institutions are, are um, you know, may, may want their vendors to to attest to that and and uh, this is again you know just uh, proving that you can you know uh, recover from a from a catastrophe given when your engineering site is taken out uh, uh, how do you recover it and how long does it take for you to set up an alternate site and part of it too is that that's one thing. The other is that what would happen if the, your company would go out of business? So I already purchased your software. I have all this invested in it. Well, what, what do you do? And then is there a third party, independent third party that could uh, could take over and not, not necessarily creating new features, but providing like product fixes or patches if necessary. And, you know, we had to go through that. And part of this exercise also forced us to rethink, uh, you know, uh, how we are building software, but also just, you know, creating some of that 
necessary documentation that you know how do you build your software how do you uh, make it uh, uh, available and then just start to think oh my goodness and then then we realize that how many you know pieces we have and how big this uh, um, the whole ecosystem is because we actually at the end of the we, at the time we were still waterfallish uh, model at the time we created these you know packages and we literally had to transfer all the files that uh, made up that particular release uh, to a third party where they stored it off-site in their wall and they verified that they could actually build the software as well. And and they could give that attestation to our clients that, yes, you're all good. Uh, um, the escrow, software escrow itself is not very exciting, but to me, the part that is interesting about this is that it forces you to to go through that process and, and teach somebody else to do that. And and you often have to do that when, when somebody else is joining your team anyway. So you, you try to, in you know, several companies, I think uh, it worked very well for us is when somebody new joins the team, then you, that's a good point to update your internal documentation as well as they are going through that. It's almost a little bit similar, but um, it's somebody who is doing that completely independently. You don't even often talk, maybe you exchange emails or so. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, I guess I'm, I get to end up being that third party sometimes just in the sense that when we, we end up inheriting a lot of projects from other agencies and stuff like that. So it's always sometimes we don't even have the benefit of getting to talk to the previous developers. We're like, we got to get a repository or here's a zip file. Here's AWS username and password. Make sense of it. But it, fortunately, usually the applications are running. We don't have to like go like spin them up like in a new hosting environment right away. So I've learned how to deal with the the lack of documentation and the lack of access to, you know, to existing team members or past team members and stuff like that. So it's a, it's the, uh, the part of me that really likes to think about it from like an archaeological perspective, like what happened here? What were they thinking? Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way. And if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. So another another thing I wanted to dig into because you you mentioned earlier on was around open source libraries, third parties, using dependencies. You know, I feel like it'd be a contentious thing to say is like is using a third party API some form of technical debt just by the decision of it in of itself. I think that could be maybe be argued by people one way or another. But when it comes to using libraries, open source libraries, things like that to help you build your application faster because community people are using those tools. What sort of approaches do you find work well in identifying which ones are worth using or when it's maybe no longer appropriate to use one anymore? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, there are, um, you know, the, the the reason why it comes up because I don't think it's uh, people internalize that, that, that is actually a that because uh, what if, Let's say an API provider suddenly says, hey, 
you know, this this API is going to be sunset in six months, and you either migrate to this V2 version of our API, or you're not going to have access to this API, and then you suddenly have a work on your hands that, that you didn't necessarily anticipate. Uh, so understanding some of these uh, support timelines, around maybe APIs or when you're looking at open source software, is, is there a community behind? Or is there maybe a, a commercial support available for it if you want it to have that kind of level of assurance and level of uh, uh, support on your end so that you don't, uh, you're not at the mercy of uh, the open source maintainer event and how they would uh, update uh, the library if you need a change or more often these days, you know, a lot of these open source libraries, uh, what you deal with is that they, is there a vulnerable component in it? Because I don't want to ship uh, a product that has vulnerable components. Uh, so I personally like looking at, again, uh, is there a community behind? Is, 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 it, is it regularly updated? Uh, or it, maybe is there a reputable organization behind it? Uh, is it, of course, in addition to looking at the licensing and so on, that you know you have to be uh, um, compatible with your own uh, contacts. Uh, so uh, these are you know other good good uh, vibe for me, of course, is that you know and some libraries like uh, some of these embedded databases they pride themselves that they we have like this ninety five ninety seven percent. Uh, automated test coverage you know that gives you like a good confidence that that you know uh, that you know uh, that that software is, is is maybe well maintained also looking at some of their documentation is is it easy to understand do you, do you have a lot of examples is it easy for the team members to get rammed up if they need help uh, um, that's that that is also an I- important factor in, in my mind I've seen Higher and worse open source components that are um, in in this sense, but uh, nobody expects uh, um, the source code to be bug free either. But you know, if if you raise something, then you expect some sort of a response within a reasonable amount of time. I also t- tend to look at when I look at an open source project, how many open issues do they have, and uh, how many you know what what is the cadence of them addressing them? Is it just you know piling up? GitHub and several of these providers also give you an idea of it, that heat map of, you know, the the commits going into the repository so that you can actually see the activity. And, and you know, sometimes it's not foolproof. I, we dealt with the components that just, they were very active up until like six months ago and nothing since then. It's like, but that's that's a risk again that, that you may have to, you know, consider build into those decisions. I think it's a, someone that, produces open source software myself. Um, I definitely, there's like seasons of how much energy I have to work on things. And so it's like, I'm glad to know that I'm like, there's always a part of me like, well, the code's there. So if anyone really needs to fix something, they can fork it and fix it. Like, cause it's not like outside of their, any developer's capacity to do that. Right. I think it's the benefit of open source, not necessarily just treating it as like a product. Where like I expect your support, you know, 24 seven or whatever. So, and if you are listening and you do feel that way towards open source developers, be mindful, but it is code that you can change often yourself as well. So it's like, can we change it is always a thing that I'm always curious about, but I also know that it doesn't always, that's not always the thing that people are thinking about when they're looking at, like say GitHub repository, they're like, they're like, okay, I think a lot of things you point out there are really good things to look at, like how often people 
interacting? Is the issue seeming to build up? Are a lot of pending pull requests? Is it like too thin of a maintainer group? They're not able to keep up on things. But also is like, I'd also say like there's sometimes there's projects that haven't been updated in a year that are actually be really effective for what I need to do right now. And the code is actually pretty simple. I'm like, okay, they're great. I, mean, I can probably snag that and, and it'll be fine. If I have to make changes, I can probably just do that one day in the future myself. So I think there's just that taking on the, 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 uh, taking on the burden of being responsible for the whole project versus just making the changes that we need at this point in time. And, and I, I think one one other thing that I'm sorry uh, uh, wanted to add here is that uh, I think it's also you know some of these companies who are relying on third party you know just think about ways of how you can contribute back you know either you know supporting the the project financially you know many of these projects take Patreon or some some other forms of uh, you know uh, financial uh, support. Is, is good, but also, you know, contributing back if, if it is, of course, possible if they take it, as you say, because uh, at the end of the day, you're, you know, profiting from it. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you are, you know, you, you get what you pay for, I suppose. So you give, give back. And then so thanks for pointing that out. I think that's a good recommendation and reminder for people. Yeah. So how involved have you been in running and implementing um, internship programs over the years? Yeah, I had the fortune of uh, doing that at, at, at uh, two or three companies in the past, and and then we also have uh, co-ops that are uh, at Mabel. Uh, what what I love, and in, especially when it comes to software about uh, internships, is that as you know, uh, it's rarely the case that when you uh, start working for a company after you graduate that you will start on greenfield projects uh, and you have to deal with somebody else's code somebody who may not be there as, as, as you often uh, face uh, and 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 I feel like that uh, you know internship just gives you that uh, kind of a opportunity for uh, for for students to to get in touch in uh, in uh, with, the, with the real life and reality and and start working on projects that that uh, are used in the real world what i think is really important is is not to uh, segregate uh, uh, you know the interns into a separate group and they work on some sort of path project that nobody's ever going to use but but to integrate them into your team and 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 have them you know just uh, uh, you know treat them as as uh, regular members of your team of course uh, you will have to help them and guide them to be successful but if they can see that they can work on the real product something that customers are used and they have the power of that they will be even more motivated if they can see the full cycle of you know how uh, how the software is made how the sausage is made that's that's even better that's what interns loved uh, at, at uh, that the companies I work with is that you know they cannot get this in the classroom it's 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 hard to replicate that uh, the other aspect that I love about it is that also it gives the opportunity for your team to maybe uh, you know, practice some of those leadership roles, technical leadership roles that you may not be able to do if, like, you you, uh, you have a, f a full team of senior engineers, you know, they don't really have much to uh, teach each other. But in, in that sense, you can also, uh, you know, uh, practice that on that side. I also love just having interns around because they just bring a little bit of color uh, to, our, to our days. Uh, and, and it's... Uh, 
uh, they always remind us how old we are at the end of the day. But uh, it's again, it's just the dynamic and that they that you know you can impact their lives. They also feel really happy when they see that they have an impact on the team uh, and they are being listened to. They are you know treated and respected as well. Um, and and it's it's just uh, also to me it's a great pleasure to see these uh, interns after they graduate where they go and see them being successful in their roles. That's really great. I you know we've been doing internships here at my company for I want to say eight years now, and we I think it was about four years ago. We're like we 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 just we decided we're going to try to do this almost every quarter if we can. Um, and we're never going, uh, and it's just like, we want to have people coming in and we made it, we decided that we weren't, we weren't going to allow it to be a hiring pipeline. We're like, no, let's actually be very intentional about having an internship program that is focused on giving people that opportunity. And if we, cause we can't hire everybody. Right. And so, and, and no, no company can, but I know some companies think about it like, oh, there's an idea for doing this because it'll bring us potentially new talent to hire. And you can do that, but I think it also doesn't really force you to kind of think about how to build a repeatable process without it being like repeatable. Like we, every intern that we bring in is going to work on something different because of where the projects were, are at at that point in time. And it's like, as you mentioned, I think it's you know, like the, trying to avoid like the pet projects and things like that that never get used. And it doesn't like if it doesn't matter if they finish it or not, then I feel like that's not real world. Cause why, you know, that, that no, nope, that doesn't feel good. Right. And so, you know, anyways, this is a, an interesting topic. I, I, I love this topic because the, because I, I feel so very strongly about some of the stuff around putting them on real world projects. When interns come here, they get to work on real client projects. Our clients know that's going to happen and they're willing to interact with the, them. So they get some experience of talking to clients, you know, they might only be here for, you know, a couple months, but for them to be able to go to that first interview, I'm like, I went into this internship. I never worked on a large app like that before. And, you know, like secretly I'm thinking some of these projects actually aren't that big, but, but it's big for them. Right. And so I'm like, it's helpful to be reminded of that. I'm like, this is, this is a big thing. And I've become so disconnected with what I thought was like, oh, that's one of our small projects. And like, this is huge to them. And they're just like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, so massive. Like, how do you wrap your head around this? And I'm like, great question. And so if anything, it kind of boosts up our own self-esteem in some ways. Like, we know more than we give ourselves credit for. And it's you know, all those questions that people bring to us that we can't, you can't anticipate that. And so that's, for us, I feel like that's been a really good way for us to give senior developers a good chance to, you know, exercise and practice those type of leadership, mentoring type skills which has then made it easier for us to bring in junior developers and recruit people. And so we don't always have to just feel like we have a team of just senior developers because we don't know how to mentor people. And it's like, now we have a team of people that all knew how to, all knows how to mentor. They're all expected to mentor. And regardless if they're a junior, mid or senior level, because now we have even a junior developers, they're providing mentorship to interns. And so it's like, we build that right, you know, into their, that, that, the expectations of the job is to not just build software, but also to help your coworkers, your peers develop software and to fill in the gaps and stuff like that. So I think that's been really helpful for my organization. And, but it's, you know, when, as you were talking, I'm like, that sounds like so much. I feel like you're saying what I would say if someone asked me the same question. So let's say get some advice from you. So if let's say those, if there's some people listening right now who might be in a scenario where 
they're writing code but don't yet have a comprehensive and or maintained automated test suite. What advice could you offer them to start maybe getting a little bit more direction on what types of tests they might start working on as, as a starting point? Like in, knowing that our audience is primarily likely software engineers themselves. I mean, it's, it's uh, of course, always good if you, especially if you're new to the team, to understand why, uh, what, what led, is leading to the current situation, just to understand the context, because, you know, there may have been decisions made that um, are, the, the, that's the reason why the things are where they are. Uh, the other is that, you know, there are a lot of um, good resources, like there are local meetup groups, uh, and there are online resources, especially test automation, there are a lot of uh, um, forums, uh, organizations such as the Ministry of Tasks, where you can actually pick up some of those ideas and connect with your peers and on 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 where to start and and help you maybe select uh, some of the tools that could cater to your needs. And you know you can always, as as, as you mentioned often, just start out small. You know, start with a small experience. Pick pick an area that uh, uh, either easy to use or or is really important or or takes a long time. Uh, an effort to, to test it over and over again, where you have the biggest bang for the buck, uh, and 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 try to, uh, you know, uh, take a stab at it. You know, they often ask, oh, "How do you eat an elephant?" And like, you know, one bite at a time. So you know, yeah, you gotta start somewhere, and and it's it's uh, okay if you fail. At, at least you tried, and you know what it is, what is not. But don't. Be shy of reaching out, even within your team, within your company, or even in your local community, because uh, there are a lot of great resources, a lot of great organizations that uh, are all over the world that that uh, can help you get get started and you know direct you in the uh, in the right way. I like that. Make sure one bite at a time. Some good recommendations there. My last few questions for you. One I like to ask most people on the show is. What non-software development-related book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? I've heard about many great books on this podcast, but one of my favorites that I just read a few months ago is this book, The Economics of Emotion by Kyle M.K., you know, subtitle, How to Build a Business Everyone Will Love. Because, uh, again, this uh, just goes into many uh, details about what we all should be understanding as, as engineers and developers too. Because at the end of the day, you have to delight your users, delight your customers, bring them value. And then what kind of culture uh, you need uh, in your company also to, to, to support that. It's a very concise uh, a short book on the topic that I I, I really like. It's it's not necessarily software related, but again, just uh, about our craft because I like uh, you know uh, delighting our users. To me, that's even outside just uh, writing code or doing testing is 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 really important uh, because that uh, that creates that connection with with uh, you know uh, just uh, sets me up for for the, you know that this is the purpose of why I'm in software in, in the first place. Nice. I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes, and that sounds fascinating. I'm going to have to pick up a copy of that right after we finish this up. Where can listeners best follow your ruminations and thoughts about software development online? I often post on LinkedIn, and you can follow me on Twitter at bcollex. 
Excellent. Well, I'll definitely include links to that as well. Well, it's been such a delight to have you join us on Maintainable today, Bertolt. Thank you so much for joining us and talking shop. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.